You know, harm was one of the things in the United States. You never work beyond your training. My goodness, if something comes in you don't know how to handle, you need to find a specialist or send the person for the care. You take care of people beyond your experience and training all the time in missions. All the time in missions. I've been on the field six months, new doctor, fresh out of my family practice residency, and remember the other two doctors were gone one Sunday. I got called to the hospital, and uh, that's the x-ray. Somebody had taken a machete and sliced this guy down right across the maxilla. His whole face was hanging open. He was about to aspirate in his own blood. I'd never done an emergency tracheostomy. That was my first. Uh, and after I got the trach in, by the grace of God, I went and got him stabilized, got some fluids. I had to go over to the library and start looking through books trying to find some picture of something that looked like that to know how to repair this. I'd never taken care of anything like that, never never seen anything like that. You can see him there laying on the operating table with his face open. And... Um, uh, you know, but there was no other option. It was me or this guy was not going to be doing very well. And with God's help and a little cookbook surgery, you ever done? You see any cookbook surgery? That's when you put the book right by the table and get over there and start operating and wired his face back up together. And uh, by the grace of God, when he finished, that's what he looked like. It was God. It wasn't me. Uh, at the same time, they brought in his nephew. We only had one operating room. And the same guy had gotten his right wrist, taken off his left arm two or three times into the skull. Um, it was a mess. And we had him on a stretcher. We had to have one of the nurses go give blood because we didn't have a blood bank. And uh, trying to resuscitate him and the medical student. Medical students can have a lot of fun on rotation. I was telling him what to do with this guy while I was operating on the guy with the face and how to close the amputations. And when we got finished, we went over and looked at this other guy. He still hadn't woken up. Something was wrong. Blood pressure was up. He had a blown pupil. He had a subdural hematoma. And I did my first neurosurgery. You get in these situations where you say, well, my goodness, you, you aren't trained to do that, but there are no options. You're often working beyond your training. You're working beyond your experience. You're working beyond your facility. It's not really good medical practice to have two or three patients in a bed. It's not good medical practice to have all your your contagious patients up in the isolation ward. So you have your TB patients with your measles patients with your... That's not really the best thing, but that's what you ended up doing because you didn't have a facility big enough to isolate all those people. You work beyond your equipment. I can remember we had a patient I diagnosed, a young guy came in with a malignant pheochromocytoma, and we were operating on him, first arterial line we'd ever put in the hospital. I was doing the anesthesia when other doctors was, a couple of other doctors were doing the surgery. Electricity went off in the middle of the case. Guy was bleeding like all over the place. I can still see the nurses in the corner jumping up and down on the floor manual vacuum machine trying to get enough suction to get the blood out so they could try to control the bleeding as they were working with flashlights. You're often in those situations where you don't have adequate equipment, you don't have enough oxygen, you don't have enough whatever. You don't have the supplies you need. In this country, it would be malpractice to re-sterilize gloves to use on patients. But when I got to the mission field, a pair of gloves cost as much as we charged a patient for a day in the hospital. So unless it was a major case, if it was a minor case, we had taken those gloves, had somebody wash them, re-sterilize them, repowder them, and we put them on sometimes. You would 
go through two or three pairs and they'd bust before you could get them on um, because they'd stick together and those type of things. But you did what you had to do because wearing that was better than wearing no gloves at all, which was the other option. Support staff. You don't have enough staff to help you uh, do what you need to do. Uh, when we got to that, I got to the 125-bed hospital, we had six trained nurses in the hospital. And uh, there was one nurse on duty for all those beds at night. Um, there's a lot of things that could have been done better if we'd had better staffing, but you did the best you could uh, considering uh, what you had and the limitations. And just time, giving the illness, giving the surgery, where do you spend your time? Where do you put your effort? And our nurses did, some of you I know are in nursing, our nurses diagnosed and treated and made rounds because it was impossible for the doctors to see all the patients every day. We were being called to see the sickest or to do the surgery or take care of the problem in OB. So these type of issues can be very real. Now, is every mission hospital like that? No. There's some that are well-staffed, some that are more developed, and there's some that are worse than that, depending on where they are. But these are the issues that you can face in missionary medicine. The more bush hospital you are, the more pioneer you are, the more you're going to run into these issues. But no matter where you go, you're going to run into some of them. So how do we approach these? Well, we need to look at the options, first of all. Um, when you have a case come in, you don't have the experience and knowledge. The first question you have to ask yourself is, is there somebody else that's got more experience or training than I have that can handle this? Uh, is there some way that I can give better care? Remember, I was doing a, a C-section on a lady that had obstructed labor for two or three days, uh, and the, the baby was still alive. And when I went in and, and opened up the lower uterine segment, the whole thing was just so thin and friable, just dissected multiple ways down into the bladder. The bladder was just in shreds. I was so thankful that the guy that taught me OB in residency was there for a month. The first thing I did, get, doc, get Dr. So-and-so up here. Because <laughs> he had more experience than I did. Now, I could have put it back together, but I wanted somebody who was going to give, give her a better job than, than uh, what I could do with the limited amount of experience that I'd had early in my training, early in my missionary life. What are the consequences? This is an anterior encephalocele. I know we've got quite a bit of light in here, but this is a, a bulging out of the membrane around the brain. Um, it's a congenital defect. And what are the consequences of doing nothing? If you don't operate on that, the child will die. It would be nice to have a neurosurgeon, a pediatric neurosurgeon. You don't have that. Actually, children do quite well, even though there's some brain tissue in there. It tends to be... Uh, pretty non-functional, and the brain is very plastic at that age, and you can take it off. So, yes, this looks like a horrendous thing, but you're going to go ahead and do something because the consequences of doing nothing is that this child will die. Uh, obligation to seek change. One of the things you never want to do is come comfortable in missionary medicine and where you are. Uh, you want to study to learn more. Um, I'm doing a talk in the morning on leadership, and one of the things I talk about in leadership and missionary medicine is the obligation to be learning all the time. And I started going back and thinking all the medicine and other things that I learned in those years overseas because you're just always in the learning mode, uh, and you should always be in the teaching mode. Um, the missionary doctor, Dr. Sturry, who was my mentor I never operated with him that he didn't turn to me and say in those early days, Dave, here, you want to do this? Well, let me show you how to do this. 
He was always teaching and training because he knew he wasn't going to be there sometime. And I needed to be able to help him and also to step in. So you learn and you've got to be in that type of approach. I remember he taught me a lot. I was seeing a little child about oh, three or four years of age. They, I guess a little more than that, about six or eight, came in and the kid had a hemoglobin of two. I didn't know you could survive with a hemoglobin of two until I went to Africa. And I worked this child up. All I could get from the mother was the child was spitting a little bloody saliva. And I thought, you know, this guy, child got TB. We had a lot of TB. The x-ray was normal. You know, this, that. I did this whole workup. I couldn't figure out what was wrong with this child. It was obviously bleeding somewhere, high reticulocyte count. So finally I, I called Dr. Sturry and, and, and actually went down and talked to him. And he was somewhere on one of the wards. And he kind of smiled and said, go get me a tongue blade and, and some anesthetic spray. And uh, I thought, well, what's that for? And uh, I went and opened up the child's mouth, sprayed the back of the throat, lift up the hypopharynx. And there, under, up above the pilot, uh, the palate, was a big leech hanging in the hypopharynx. They didn't cover that in residency. I don't know about, <laughs> I don't know about you all. This kid almost bled to death from this leech. They, they, they had these claws that kind of get in there and, and break the skin and they secrete an anticoagulant and you just ooze. And this kid had just oozed to death. And uh, the Ernie turned to me and said, do you know how to get that out? And I thought, man, I didn't know it was there. I don't know how about getting it out. <laughs> and uh, he said, oh, get some viscous silicone, just start painting it. You don't want to pull it off. It'll, it'll leave the head on there. And sure enough, just anesthetize the thing by with a swab and before long it fell off, grabbed it, and the cow survived. Uh, the, you you, you want to? I, I never missed one of those again. I always looked up there when I had anemia, because uh, but that wasn't one of the causes that I've been taught. Improve your equipment. New, you know, getting a new operating. I remember we had so many times we were doing two operations in the same operating room. We built new facility. We put in extra operating rooms. Uh, we got better uh, equipment. We got electricity. We got 24 hours a day by building a hydroelectric plant. You're always saying, how can I make it better so I don't face this problem? And train others, especially your staff. One of the things in missionary medicine is to keep asking yourself, what is it that I have to do and what can I teach others to do so I don't have to do it? And uh, training your national staff and other missionaries. That includes starting training schools, doing it formally, doing it informally. But you realize, you know, we had six nurses. We started a nursing school. Today, that hospital has one of the best nursing schools in Kenya. And um, uh, this year, 44 nursing schools in the country, and only six had all their students passed. And one of them was there. Uh, one of the schools was the one at Tenwick. So, look at the risk benefit and stay within reasonable limits. Um, that's a big, huge hematoma, uh, hepatoma that this woman has. You shouldn't operate on that. The chance of doing anything good for her is almost nil, and the chance for harming her is high. Uh, you have to look at these things and make decisions, and sometimes they're hard. Many of you are familiar with the term spina bifida. It's when an open spine and uh, part of the spinal cord is in a sac. We have children born with that. We have a lot of neural cord defects at our hospital. And we had to make a difficult decision because we learned something over the years. The missionaries before I was there learned it. If the child was paralyzed, was paraplegic from that, you could operate on it and close it and get a great technical result, and all those children died because the parents could not take care of them in the village. Without exception, they died. If they were not paralyzed and you repaired them, 
the kids did great. And we came to the decision after a while, and it was not an easy decision to come to, that we were not going to operate on the children that were paraplegic. All we were doing was saddling the the patient's parents with a huge bill, and they were going to die anyway. Now, that's hard, because in this country, you could take care of those children. But in that country, you could not. And some of those things of how are we really going to have short and long-term success, you had to look at and decide what to do. We had some burn patients come in with extensive burns, and you looked at them and said, we do not have the nursing staff, we do not have the time and the expertise, and this, this person is not going to survive, and we do not have the capability of taking care of them. And it was comfort majors only. And then what can you manage and support? People come to you and say, we'd like to give a CT scanner to your hospital or some other piece of equipment. That's wonderful, but how am I going to keep it repaired? How am I going to have enough money to make sure that it's operational? It'd be great to have a CT scanner, and some mission hospitals have them now and have that capability, but you have to look and say, what can you manage? What can you support? Let's talk about beneficence. That's the second concept. And in mission facilities, it's often... And it's not a matter you don't want to be good, but what do you do when you have competing goods? When you have, uh, you know, is it cure versus prevention? I remember the big debate. We had 50% of our patients were dying of preventable diseases, uh, 50% of the patients in the hospitals. We had six nurses, three doctors, 300,000 people in our catchment area. We knew we needed to do, uh, you know, uh, prevention and we had to sit down and make some tough decisions. You know, what kind of resources can we put? Can we put a nurse over there full time? Uh, what's that going to do at the hospital? What's going to do in OB where the nurses are taking night call and taking care of the routine OB stuff? Policeman versus missionary. That's not something I really expected. Um, you know, I'm going over to help people. And you get overseas and find out one of the big problems in the hospital is theft. People stole all the time throw their sheets over the fence. Uh, Some of the staff would take medicines and steal them and open up their own little clinics in the community. Uh, The empty vials uh, that you'd use for an injection, fill them up with water, get some syringes, and I'm a doctor now in the community. Theft here, and I found myself, as I became director of the hospital, I'm a policeman. How's that really, you know, I remember the first time I put one of my staff members in jail. That's something a missionary should do. We could get into that and have a nice long discussion. It, um, but what had happened at the hospital was people stole, they got caught, they went home and enjoyed the ill-got gains after they were let go, and finally realized we had to have an example and uh, send somebody uh, to prison, which uh, stopped a little bit of the stealing. The blessing of it, and it's a long story. The blessing of it is why in prison he came to the Lord. I still remember picking him up on the highway after he'd gotten out of prison out on the road on the highway and asking him how he was doing. And, you know, and he looked at me and said, Dr. Stevens, I want to thank you for putting me in prison and told what God had done. Paying staff versus gratis treatment. You know, yes, we want to be benevolent. We want to take care of people. But what if you do that to the extent that you now don't have enough income in the hospital, which is supposed to be self-supporting in this day-to-day operations, to begin paying your staff. So where do you find that balance of not turning people away, but at the same time taking care of uh, those you can and still paying your staff? Many not so sick versus a few of the sickest. 
You've got a hospital full of patients. Many of them very salvageable. You have some come in that have very serious issues and you realize the chance of success is very small and it's going to take an extensive amount of your time to take care of them to the neglect of other patients. These are real issues when you're working in these situations. The lesser of the two evils. You get a big shipment of medicine, supplies, and equipment. You're so excited to finally arrive at the port. This is going to just really make a difference. But the guy down at the port's not going to give it to you unless you bribe him. What are you going to do? You've got two evils. All your medicines go bad sitting in the sun down at the port and people die at the hospital. And you have the issue of paying someone a bribe. We could spend a whole session on each one of these issues. Universal precautions. I remember when AIDS hit Africa and uh, I was there when it became a big issue at the hospital. We had a uh, pediatrician lady that came out to help us. The first day she came up to the hospital, she came up in full gown, double gloved, full face mask, walking up the hill. She looked like something from outer space to my staff. They had never seen anything like this. And then she starts telling everybody, oh, this is what you need to do to keep from getting that disease that will kill you. We didn't have the money at the hospital to provide that for all our staff. We couldn't have begun to cover the expense. So where do you find the reasonable level when, yes, you want to protect your staff, but the other thing, you've got to have enough money to employ your staff. Doctors getting burnt out, working so long and hard, but there's only three of you. One of you goes on vacations. People aren't going to be seen, at least not as frequently. So you've got two evils. You don't want to burn out. You don't want the doctor to go home permanently because you're not taking care of him. There are some principles. You know, we talk about the principle of utility. Utilitarianism. It's a dirty word. You don't want to be utilitarianist. Do you? No, actually, there is a place for utilitarianism. Did you know that? And here are the principles of utility. When you're dealing, and this helps you often in these areas, when there are no moral absolutes for or against an action. Let me give you an example. patient comes into the hospital has rabies. People die with rabies. Now, you could say, you know, let's do the compassionate, the easiest thing, least expense is just kill the patient. Overdose them with some morphine. Family would be probably happier. The patient is not going to suffer. The staff aren't going to have to watch it. But there is a moral absolute for or against that, isn't it, right? So you can't be utilitarian. Some people want to be. That's why we have this euthanasia movement in our country. Principle, but if there are no moral absolutes, and when you know your moral duty, but you're not sure how to fulfill it, in other words, you've um, you, you just don't have enough of you to go around, or you have a limited supply, or whatever, you've got this moral duty, but you're not sure how to fulfill it. When there's a conflict between two moral duties, and both cannot be fulfilled, I can't be two places at once. I have to make a decision. Two patients come in from a car accident. One of them is really badly injured and I think maybe has a 10 or 15% chance of survival. And another one has an urgent matter that needs to be taken care of, but if I take care of it, it's pretty sure going to survive. Well, then you have to decide, I've got two moral duties. Both cannot be filled. One of them has to go to the operating room first. 
Which one do you take? That's when you get down to the place where you're saying, okay, the chance for this one is very little, and I know I can save this one, but it's going to die if I don't take him first, and his chances are better. That's utility. When you must prioritize your duties. And you do a lot of this in missionary medicine. Let me give you another example. We had a small generator that powered the operating room and had enough power for one incubator. We had a high level of premature births at the hospital. So we had to decide who went into the incubator. Now, you can put three babies in an incubator. It's not really good for infection control, but you can do it. And we did because the other option was they stayed out and most of them died. But then you had to make the decision when the next one was born, was this this new one that's born worse shape than the ones that are already in there? Which one of those are we going to take out? Which Where are we going to play? They, they, they were all moral goods. We wanted to save all these children, but you had to look at the percentages, the odds, your medical knowledge, and make difficult decisions to see what you need to do. Principles of utility. Uh, and when there are limited resources, which is just what we've been talking about. Let's talk about autonomy. The whole idea of paternalism. Um, you have a desire to help, to advise, to, to, to cure, and... Uh, and, but the trouble in a mission facility is that the problem is influenced by patients' worldview, their belief systems. I remember arguing with patients when I first became a missionary. A big old tall Maasai guy come in with his blanket and uh, he had uh, some, some disease and just needed a handful of pills, uh, some antibiotics. And I prescribed that to him, and he'd walk out and go get his medicine. And in a few minutes, a staff member would come up and say, uh, you know, a rap so-and-so wants to see you. I mean, this guy's carrying a spear, you know, so you say, okay. Um, and um, he said, uh, these pills don't work. No, those, those are exactly what you need. No, these don't work. I need an injection because there's power in the injection. See, if you give me that injection... What he's thinking is, that's going to let the evil spirits out because you've actually pierced my skin and then you've put that medicine in there to keep the evil spirits from getting back in and the pills don't do that. Now you could sit there and argue with them for half an hour and you aren't going to change your mind because of their worldview. I did that a few times and finally I just said, okay, take this over to the pharmacy and on that little slip of paper it says, give injection of sterile water and um, not, not saline because sterile water really hurts and that means it's more powerful. <laughs> and then I'd say to Rap so-and-so, now this injection is, is, is going to help you, but it's only going to work if you take those pills. Now that's very paternalistic in our culture, wouldn't it be? But there, it was the right thing to do. Um, their intelligence, ability to grasp new concepts. Can patient, uh, you know, you're trying to explain what a sigmoid volvulus is to a Maasai man. You know, and Balmindi uh, Boet, your stomach isn't going. Well, that doesn't really, not what a sigmoid volvulus is. That's the only, only words in the language to explain it to in Kipsigis were words that really didn't describe the problem in enough detail, and they did not have a knowledge of anatomy and those type of things. Uh, education level affects these things, the communication ability, your ability to use the language to explain things. 
So this whole issue of I'm giving good informed consent, uh, a lot of it goes right out the window and you become more paternalistic than you want to be. So how do you guard against the problems of paternalism? And um, even if you're wanting to be beneficent, which you do, do good things, can still be problematic. In principles, you get the best informed consent you can. And it's more important with serious things. You always do it before major surgery or something like that. Explain it as best you can. Even if they don't understand, they're going to put their X there. Um, and you have to realize that's probably happening because the doctor said I need to do it and, and I trust the doctor. But you do the best you can because it's what you should do. You volunteer accountability. Uh, unmonitored autonomy is dangerous, even for you, even for me, especially in a mission situation where you have so much to do and so much pressure to get it accomplished. Um, in those type of situations, high patient atmosphere, high time pressure, uh, you need to have some checks and balances, and that includes some internal review systems, um, setting up uh, systems to measure activities and outcomes. We did a, a uh, annual report every year. We kept statistics in all our surgery. Why did we do all that? Well, because it was very good for us to look and say, okay, what was our C-section rate last year and five years ago, and what was our death rate, and how are we doing with this disease, and some of those checks and balances, and we published it, and other people could see it, and we could compare it to other mission hospitals. And yes, it took a lot of work, but it helped us to really look carefully at what we're doing as we measured our results. Having some peer review, uh, group accountability, sitting down after a time something didn't go right and really have M&M rounds with uh, morbidity and mortality rounds with uh, the other missionary doctors and talk about how could we have done better, what could we have done different, um, you know, this type of thing. In most of these countries, people aren't going to be suing you. Um, and, and, you know, those fears that we have here are not the issue, but you need to be looking at the quality of what you're doing. Uh, comparison we've talked about in external review. It's well worth getting some group to come in and give you some ideas. Uh, CMDA has the Center for Medical Missions, and uh, we have a doctor and nurse that work there, and they've often gone into other hospitals and looked at why, where are things going well, where it's not going well, how can they do a better job. Just having somebody with a fresh set of eyes to come alongside and help uh, people do it better. And then community feedback. How does the community see you? How, how, what's their respect for the hospital? Do they think they're getting good care? You can get so busy doing things uh, that you're not paying enough attention to what the community is seeing you at. Let's talk about justice. And we'll finish with this. Microallocation. And this is where it really gets tough. It's the whole concept that we've touched on in some areas, but uh, you're dealing with a lot of factors that affect um, your microallocation from staffing, educational opportunities, corruption uh, in Africa and other parts of the world, huge brain drain where all their trained staff are going overseas to develop countries where they can make more money. You have problems of tribalism, ethnic conflicts, uh, powerful politicians, uh, an alternative medicine system, the local medicine man, witch doctor, whatever you want to call them, all sorts of things are, are impacting you. Uh, I, I laughingly say that managed care really started in mission hospitals because managed care in a mission hospital means you have unlimited needs and, and limited resources, and you have to manage what you're doing. A good example of that is who gets the infertility workup. I remember when I first went to Kenya, you're taking care of life and death things, 
and a couple came in. They wanted to talk to me in private and um, and very haltingly told me that his wife had not been able to have a, ch- a child for the last two, next two years. Now, for two years. Now, at that time, Kenya had the highest population growth rate of any country in the world. It was a big issue. So, you know, my initial response was, well, good, one less, you know. Uh, and and my second thought was, I, I, I've got I got this lady laboring. I think I'm going to have to do a C-section on. I haven't gone down to Ward C yet. I don't have time. I know how to do an infertility workup, but I don't have time to go do this. I mean, there's important things to do, right? Until one of the doctors pulled me aside and been there and said, you need to understand the issue here. If this woman doesn't get pregnant in two years, her husband sends her home, asks for the diary back, and her life is over. Most of those girls commit suicide. This is a, this is a, a big issue, and you need to deal with it. And uh, I became a lot more compassionate and caring about infertility because of what that meant in that culture than I ever had before. Uh, issues of accessibility, um, what kind of things am I talking about? Is it fair in a mission hospital to charge some patients more than others? You have the politician come in or the rich businessman and they've got plenty of money and you're charging the you know, equivalent of a dollar a day when we got there um, for people, uh, you know, because they were so poor. But these people could pay more. So what's fair? Um, if they give you more money, is it fair to give them more access and attention? Is it fair to give them a semi-private room or a private room? Should you build those in your mission hospital? These are discussions you have. Do you have a private clinic where they pay ten times as much, but they get an appointment to come in and see you? Questions that will come up. Um, sliding scales. The powerful for the powerless. You go to many developing countries and the lion's there and the local district uh, commissioner comes up or the member of parliament drives up in his Mercedes and he gets out and walks right to the front of the line and in the door. Why is it not fair? I mean, these people have been waiting all day. How are you going to deal with that? We're going to talk about some of the principles. You need to be fair as impartial as the situation allows. And you notice I qualified that. Because after you get to Africa and find out, if you don't care to take care of the district commissioner, two things are happening. First of all, nobody else is going to come into the door until he's taken care of. Nobody's going to get in front of him in line. And secondly, he's going to cause you all kinds of problems if you don't take care of him. Uh, so you want to be as impartial and fair, but realize in certain situations and the cultural norms, you have to adapt to them. Um, do you have two levels of care? No, you don't have two levels of care, but you you may have two levels of access. What do I mean by that? People should get the same quality of care and you should not neglect someone very sick for someone not very sick, no matter who they are. But there is opportunities to help fund your hospital, make it possible for you to see the poor patients by charging some more and giving them better access if you can do it with, your, with the, the uh, people that you have. So some of those things that you have to work through. Uh, you do the best you can for the most people with the resources you have. 
remember one of my friends from residency came over and we were in residency together and he got the pediatric ward. And you don't lose kids in this country very often unless it's an overwhelming illness. And in that time in Africa, you lost two or three kids a day. Half the ones in the pediatric ward needed an ICU and all sorts of things you didn't have. And I remember one night Mike was coming down after work and just broke into tears. He had lost so many kids that day and he was just running from one emergency to the other. And I, I put my arm around him and said, Mike, listen, you've got to understand, you can't save them all. If you weren't here, none of them would get care. You do the best you can for the most people, but realize you cannot save them all. That's very difficult for us because of how we're trained, but it's a reality in these situations. Disaster triage ethical principles often have to be employed. You know, in a battlefield situation, uh, when they're taking care of casualties, they often divide them into three groups. Here are the ones that are not seriously enough injured. We can delay their care, and and that'll be okay. And then here's the ones uh, that are so seriously injured that they're probably going to die anyway, and we put them over here and give them comfort measures. And then we have the ones in the middle where we can really make a difference and those we're going to take care of. Uh, That's very difficult. It's not how you want to practice, but sometimes you're forced into those type of situations. Virtue ethics is the whole concept. The quality of being morally good and righteous helps you make good decisions. And uh, I think that's the thing that often gives us guidance and wisdom as well as prayer and asking the Lord for guidance of how do I deal with this situation The thing you want to avoid is becoming hard, becoming callous, because when you see so much pain and suffering and there's so much pressure that can be on you at times, it can be a a real issue. Other recommendations in a facility is to have some sort of group that looks at these things, an ethics committee that's representative, has both national and missionary staff, Write out your principles and your guidelines so everybody know what they are. Communicate to all levels of staff so you know why decisions are being made and mechanisms to review specific problems. Uh, These issues are not easy, but they're not new. You know who else dealt with them? The great physician. You ever thought about that? Because... He had many more patients than he could take care of, and he picked and choosed and made decisions. And someday I'd like to sit down and ask him how he did that. He could have healed everybody in Palestine with a click of his fingers or a nod of his head, and yet he dealt with some and some he did not deal with. We want to follow biblical principles as we deal with these issues. We don't want to be discouraged or turn away from what God's called us to do because it's difficult and hard. But most of all, we want to take Him with us to the bedside and ask for His wisdom and guidance. Because I could sit here and talk to you hour after hour and you'd still face things I'd never talk about. And it's only He that's going to be able to give you guidance. Questions? Yes? Right. Yeah. I think I think one of the key things is to be is to share the burden with others. Secondly, look to people that have been there longer than you have, have more experience and and have dealt with these issues to give you guidance. You have to change your whole way of thinking when you go to the mission field. 
because what they've taught you in training, the principles are still true, but the application is totally different. And you do not know how to handle it. I mean, you know, I, I have never faced this situation before. And you, you can feel helpless and hopeless and stressed and overworked. And, some of, some, and so talking with others about it, getting them involved in decisions, asking for advice, prayer, uh, debriefing afterwards can be helpful. And it takes time to readjust how you practice medicine from what you've been trained to do. Um, because uh, I remember a couple doctors came, internists, and we put them in the medicine ward, and there was a husband and wife. Both of them were physicians. And there was only 20, 30 patients in there. It was nothing. I mean, you know, that was an hour and a half, two-hour rounds in the morning and get on to the rest of the hospital. And, you know, they were doing these big internal medicine workups, page after page, orders. The lab came to me, Dr. Stevens, you got to do some of these people. We can't do all this lab they're ordering. And they didn't get all the patients seen the first day in this. And the staff were complaining, you know. And, you know, by the third day, they were sleeping on the ward with the patients so they could try to make sure that all the work got done. The fourth day, they decided to go home because they were trying to practice American medicine in a situation where you could not do it. And they couldn't handle the stress and they couldn't adapt. Yes? Comment. Um, it bothers us as Westerners much more than it does the culture that we go through yeah. with these uh, issues of uh, justice. Um, I remember I was upset because I was seeing uh, in West Africa the fathers getting the big plate of rice and then the, the children getting a small mouth until I realized that they had to have a dad who could work and get the job done and do his farming and everything. And so it wasn't that he didn't care for his children. He, it was a, it's a different way of thinking. It's very utilitarian. Yeah, this is what I need. Yeah, the thing that I think humbles you the most in these situations is that you're dealing with death and dying and making decisions and, and difficult ones and patients look at you with a smile on your face and say, oh, doctor, thank you. At least you tried or at least you saw us. Um, you know, it's very humbling. We're here, people are so demanding and there, no matter what the outcome, they're so thankful that you have even shown you cared. Um, one more question and then we're going to break up. Yes? As far as the accessibility goes, like, I mean, you've given us a lot of questions. How yeah. have you answered that? Like, have, you, have you come up with a sliding scale? Did you use that? How effective was it? Yeah, we, we ended up doing it as we got a few more doctors at the hospital. We actually had a uh, private clinic, and people could get, you know, and they paid a lot more money for it. We had enough capacity at that time that we could put somebody there and still not damage the care in the rest of the hospital. And it helped fund the care for those who couldn't afford it. Um, so there's a time to do that. Uh, it's, it's a decision you have to make. Now, when we were so short-staffed where it would have meant wards of patients were going to be seeing because somebody's over here doing private appointments, we didn't do it. We just said, sorry, we can't. When we got enough staff and got a few more people and we could make a schedule to do that, we did. Built good relationships, and it helped us in, in that culture. It was a lot of Asians, Indians, Pakistan businessmen, and others that were the business class, Hindus, and it was a great outreach and evangelism to them, which is a group we really wanted to touch. So, yeah, and, and you know, I haven't given you every answer because I'm sure I have all the answers. But often these decisions can be made with a group of people as you sit down and pray and think through the issues and decide what's appropriate for where you are 
at that time in your institution. I'll be here if you've got other questions. I'll be sticking around for a little while and be happy to answer them. God bless and go and help the world.